Okay, I guess, I guess we'll start. So hi everyone, thank you for tuning in today. Alex and I would like to welcome you to the fourth Sustainable Food Summit event. This week we have engaged and will continue to engage with incredible individuals to talk about all kinds of issues and innovations related to the sustainability of our food systems. Today we're going to focus on sustainable food from an ocean's perspective and the oceans have often been overlooked so hopefully this conversation will bring to light some of the important issues provided by this extremely important ecosystem. We'll be going to do a Q&A for the last 10 minutes of today's event so please do pop your questions into the chat as they come to you and we'll do our best to answer them at the end of the session. Thanks Emma. So yeah I'm Alex. So before we start, I just want to say that today's event wouldn't have happened without the Save Our Seas Foundation, which is an incredible NGO who pushes for more sustainable management of the oceans and supports some really amazing projects around the world who are working towards this same goal. One of these projects is Melissa's, which I'm really excited to discuss more about. But before we dive into that conversation, I just have a few words that I want to say about Save Our Seas Foundation. So this charity is dedicated to the protection of the oceans, focusing specifically on shark and ray species, but they cover loads of issues and they do loads of really exciting science. They produce around 30 peer reviewed publications every year. And I was actually lucky enough to work on one of these projects last year. And I was looking at sea turtles and the Seychelles and analyzing their movement patterns. So as well as doing lots of work themselves, they also support educational projects and research They've supported over 400 projects across 85 countries in the last 18 years, covering 165 marine species. And one of the projects which they support is Melissa's. So Melissa's work really focuses on how to make fishing, in particular tuna fishing, more sustainable. She was awarded the grand prize in the International Seafood Sustainability Foundation's Seafood Sustainability Contest. Treads a bit like a tongue twister last year. So clearly we have an expert in sustainable seafood with us. So thank you so much for joining us. And I think ev everybody is so eager to hear from you now. So could you please introduce yourself and tell us a bit about the research that you're doing? Yeah, thank you so much for having me. I'm thrilled to be here. It's cool for me to get out of my research zone and talk with younger folks. So I'm so thrilled to be here. Um, so yeah, as you said, I'm Melissa Cronin. I'm actually a PhD student. I'm finishing up this year at the University of California in Santa Cruz. And I, my research focuses broadly on seafood sustainability. I do interdisciplinary work, though I'm technically a conservation ecologist, but I use a bunch of different methods to sort of study the impact of large, large-scale tuna fishing on sharks and rays. I do things like genetics, which is the work that the Save Our Seas Foundation has generously supported. I do some large scale global review work. I do policy analysis and I do media analysis. So I'm working on sort of interdisciplinary methods to understand this problem and working with fishers to collaboratively try to come up with solutions to address it. So my work is kind of across the map, um, but generally I focus on how can we fish more sustainably, how can we reduce the impacts that we have on the oceans, particularly on vulnerable species, and how can we operationalize fisher knowledge to try to solve some of these problems? 
Well, your work sounds really phenomenal. So thank you for putting like so much into such a short description because I know there's such depth to each part of that. So you really do take a holistic approach when looking and fishing. And I'm sure we'll go into that in different ways today. So the Save Our Seas Foundation focuses on shark and ray species and your research also focuses on rays. So could you explain to us here why these species are focused on in particular? Are they particularly threatened and vulnerable or why did you choose them? Yeah, so I think something that SOSF, Save Our Seas Foundation, has focused on, I think that, you know, there's so many reasons to try to protect sharks and rays, right? They're culturally important, they're economically important, they're tourism assets, they're important to ecosystems. And on top of all of those reasons, they're also, many of them, I'd say most of them, are particularly vulnerable to anthropogenic impacts, so human impacts. This is because they are generally really slow growing. A lot of them have very few offspring, unlike a fish, which often has, you know, million, thousands, millions of offspring every year. Sharks and rays, a lot of them have very few babies every year, sometimes more like a human reproductive cycle where they have one baby every couple of years. And so that means that they're particularly vulnerable. You know, taking one out is, is not the same as taking one fish out. It takes them longer to recover. So among those sharks and rays, together we call them elasobranchs. If you really want to impress the marine biologists, throw that word around, elasobranch. But among those elasobranchs, sharks and rays, um, of those mobula rays, which are manta and devil rays, are particularly vulnerable. So it's like we have this vulnerable group and then within that an even higher risk group. And I'll say that again, another word to like throw around at your next dinner party is mobula ray. It's essentially just a manta or a devil ray very closely related species. And this group in particular is super high risk. It's one of the slowest growing of any of the sharks and rays. Um, they have one offspring every one to three years. They're pregnant for 12 months at a time, longer than humans. So, you know, already we have a, a much more similar reproductive cycle to a dolphin, to a human, to an elephant. And simultaneously, these species are threatened by all different types of fisheries. So gillnet, small scale fisheries catch them. Longline fisheries sometimes catch them. And then what I work in is a, a tuna fishery called a purstane fishery. They catch them on the thousands every year. So we have this vulnerable group within a vulnerable group that has multiple human induced impacts. And so it's a really high, high uh, priority species for conservation. At the same time, like I mentioned before, you know, like other sharks and rays, manta rays are iconic species. They're really important in some places for coastal tourism, you know, people travel thousands of miles to see manta rays. They're important culturally. They're, they're really important to, to a lot of different things. So um, they're a high, high risk species. They're a high priority species. And then finally, you know, the reason why we've had some sort of traction in working on this, working on manta rays is specifically in these tuna fisheries is because they're a sort of reputational problem for the fishery. You know, nobody wants to eat uh, tuna that has sort of been involved with, you know, harming or killing manta rays. And so it's a problem that a lot of people are interested in solving. But of course, it's also a very thorny problem. So, so there's lots of reasons to sort of care about mantas and about sharks and rays, but those are just a, a few of them and why I work on them. Thank you. I had no idea that their re reproductive systems were on the same level as ours and it was so small. So that's really shocking. 
I know bycatch is a big role to play as well in sustainable fishing and why it's an issue. Could you explain it to us now and explain what the other issues of fishing are within bycatch? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So bycatch, I'm glad that you're throwing it around. Not everybody knows that term, um, but I like to hear it in the lexicon more these days. So essentially, just for a primer, anytime we're fishing, anytime people are fishing, there's likely to be accidental species that get caught in your fishing gear. And that's what we call bycatch or unintentional capture, non-target capture. There's lots of different words for it. Bycatch is a great shorthand. In tuna fisheries, as in all fisheries, there are multiple different species that are caught as bycatch, of which mantas are one. You know, this can be a huge problem for multiple reasons. One is, you know, catching an endangered species, whether it be a manta, whether it be a shark, whether a sea turtle, this can cause mortality. It can drive population declines. We have so many examples of bycatch being a primary driver of population decline. So not even, you know, targeting the species, but just accidentally capturing it can actually drive that population to decline. We also know that bycatch can cause problems in ecosystems. You know, if you are catching a lot of, for instance, fish and throwing it back, that brings new sort of nutrient flows into the system. It can be reputational risk for fishers, as I talked about. So, so beyond even conservation problems, there's ecosystem environmental problems, there's fisher problems. Um, it's, a, it's a massive issue and it happens in almost every fishery, I would say. You know, combined with, you mentioned other fisheries problem, bycatch is just one of them. We have overfishing, of course. I, I, I assume some people have at least heard of that term. You know, there, that is sort of happening in many fisheries around the world, overfishing, taking too much out so that the fishery can't sustain how much you, you remove, whether target species are again bycatch. We have lots of other problems in fisheries, including human problems, labor problems, equity problems. If you haven't heard about, you know, sort of labor violations in the seafood supply chain, seafood slavery, there are a lot of human problems, a lot of ecological problems in fisheries. And, and I'll just put a plug for those of you who are doing, you know, your university studies. Um, there's a lot of problems that need solving and we need a lot of really uh, brilliant and, and hardworking scientists to work on, on these fishery problems. So Certainly there's at least some job security there for you, at least content wise. Yeah, it's really interesting that you go on to mention solutions because it's really shocking when you hear this like massive list of problems that we all kind of feel like we're contributing to by you know eating all of these food products. And I think with COP26 just passing, I think a lot of people are thinking that policies and these like regulations and treaties are the answer. And you mentioned at the start that some of your research is policy analysis. Mm. So I'm just really interested in what you think the main policy issues surrounding fishing are at the moment. Um, yeah, that's a great question. And, you know, if you look at my work, I am really interested in these sort of top down policy remedies as one solution to the problem. It depends on the fishery. I'll just caveat all of this by saying it depends on the fishery that we're talking about, right? There's so many different types of fisheries around the world for so many different species, so many different social settings. So each solution has to be tailored for that fishery. I'll say that in the context of tuna fisheries, policies can be very, very powerful. 
And the reason, well, one reason for that is that they are enormous. So tuna fisheries, for example, the fisher that I work in, they use these massive nets called per se net. These nets can be 40 football fields across. So this is like big tuna with a capital B, capital T. This is not, you know, your next door neighbors like pull in line. Um, and for that reason, these fisheries go way out into, often into the high seas where there is a different management structure than in coastal waters. Essentially, these fisheries are managed by a centralized international body made up of country members. So it's just really fascinating. I mean, if you're interested in like collective action and social dynamics, these management bodies are totally fascinating. There's five of them in the world and they cover the entire ocean basin. So there's one for the Eastern Pacific, one for the Western Pacific, one for the entire Atlantic, the Indian Ocean. You know, these are huge. And I just say that to emphasize that the policies that these management bodies enact are ocean basin wide. And so they, they are potentially super, super impactful. You know, it's like, if you could say, okay, I'm gonna enact a policy for a, a fifth of the ocean. To me, that's really high impact, high potential area, especially thinking about these species like mantas that are already experiencing population declines, like the time is now to act. And if we can have impact on such a huge scale, to me, that is like a really big win, you know, or a potential win. So I'd say that, you know, that's the reason why I'm really interested in these sort of top-down management policy tools, policy instruments. Um, I'll say that, you know, one of the major findings from my research is that these policy instruments have not been effective in large part at actually reducing population declines or at actually addressing and, and reducing, mitigating this bycatch. And there's a lot of sort of complicated wonky reasons for that, but essentially, you know, one of my findings is that we don't have the, the policy right now, currently, that will really enact change. And so for that reason, I say, you know, on one hand, these policies are really important. On the other hand, we also need other avenues. One of the things that I'm doing in my work is to work on um, technological change in some of these fisheries, where we actually have developed a device with the input of fishers, um, sort of a collaborative project, to, to reduce the likelihood that a bicot manta will die after capture. So it's essentially like a glorified grid, we call it a manta grid, and a lot of other folks have been involved in this, um, but essentially what it does is just pops the manta off board um, during the capture process. That's one example that is not like a catch-all silver bullet. It's just one example of, you know, other things you can do in conjunction with policy to have impact. So I think, you know, policy, I, I think is like the important thing, but I think it has to be paired with these other conservation interventions that are tailored. We can't, you know, put all of our eggs in that basket because we just need, we need more, frankly. Yeah, great question. I think before we move away from that, there was just a quick question, which I think if we address that now, which is what is the name of those tuna organizations? Yes. This commissions that you're talking about? Yeah, so they're commissions. They're technically called Tuna Regional Fisheries Management Organizations, RFMO. The, the world of like high seas fisheries is like extremely acronym laden. So if you get comfortable with those um, RFMOs or some of these, you know, acronyms, you'll, you'll start to see them everywhere. And there's RFMOs for all different types of fishing. So there's like ground fish, there's like coastal RFMOs, 
but the tuna arfamos, there's five of them and they're, and they're, as I said, one in each ocean, tuna arfamos, essentially they are commissions though. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. When you were talking before you went into the detail and you just made the point about how there's so many different types of fishing. I think that's really interesting when it comes to talking about these solutions, because I think me personally, anyway, sometimes when we talk about fishing, we see it as very homogenous and we either picture, you know, loads of just little boats with a fishing line, or some people might picture these huge, like you're talking about with these like huge nets going out, bottom trawling, etc. But it's, it's a mix of those. So even when you're talking about top-down policies and technology, because there's such a diversity in methods and geographically where it's happening, I was just wondering how you envision these kind of top-down approaches, which are linked to technology and other methods working at this global scale to achieve, you know, very idyllic, global, sustainable fishing. <laughs> Yeah, in, in the context of different types of fisheries, you mean? Yeah, so it's so um, diverse. There's like the big fisheries, there's the local communities, the coastal communities, which are very dependent. Yeah. Yeah, that's a great question. And I, I think just, just to sort of echo your point, you know, there are so many different types. It's like saying all farming is X. You know, it's just, it's not fully grasping the diversity of fisheries of fisheries in terms of, you know, gear, sure. In terms of target species, sure. In terms of organization, like a large scale tuna fishery, an industrial vessel is extremely different than a small scale, you know, dugout canoe that a, a local fisher uses for subsistence. Um, so I think it's really, really important that people start thinking of fisheries not as a single entity, but as a spectrum of different activities in the ocean. And, you know, again, like there's no way to sort of say with a blanket, like what type of fishery is good? What type of fishery is bad? That's an impossible question. What I do think is a really interesting framework is to think about um, what does the fishery serve? What type of product does the fishery create? You know, is it a small scale fishery that is for subsistence, for indigenous subsistence, especially? Is it for a local subsistence? Is it for food? You know, is this an actual like a food production process or is it a commodity, uh, particularly a globalized commercialized commodity? And by that, I mean something like a can of tuna, which is traded across, you know, many, many countries to get to its end line consumer. I think those are totally different chains. Those are totally different industries and they cannot be completed just because they happen in the same place in the ocean. It doesn't mean that they are similar in any way. So I think, you know, a lot of this talk about seafood sustainability is about, you know, consumption. But I think like the very first baseline is to understand, well, what type of fishery is this? It's almost like we need a new vocabulary for the different types of fisheries because it's really, it's really a false flag to, to call them the same thing uh, when there's so much diversity. Definitely. I don't think we could agree more with that. The new vocabulary is definitely needed. And so if we look into that in more detail, so talking about subsistence farming, I say whether it's local or indigenous, which goes against my point originally. So if you could 
address that separately as well, that would be great. Like, how could we support those with livelihoods who depend on fishing and coastal ecosystems? Yeah, so I think that, how could we support local? I think that for folks who live in a coastal area and have a fishery that they know about and um, have sort of learned about, you know, buying fish from that fishery, if you are eating fish, is a good way to support a coastal livelihood, you know, in, in terms of consumption. Beyond that, and I think perhaps more importantly than that, is to address some of these political governance and, and social issues that actually allow for unsustainable fishing, for overfishing, for labor abuses in seafood chains. And those levers really are not about consumption, in my opinion, at least. Um, those levers are political. Those levers require a little more than just like buying a different filet of fish, um, actually quite a lot more. And I'd say, you know, I encourage folks to get involved politically in terms of fishery management in your country, for instance. There's a lot that's going on that people are not paying attention to generally in many countries for you know, both for high seas fishing, but also for national fishing in your in your country waters. Every country has 200 nautical miles of waters that are sovereign to that country. And there's a lot of different types of fishing going on there. So I'd say getting involved politically, trying to influence that political process, trying to learn more at least about that political process. You know, who's allowed to fish in that area? What type of fishing is happening? And am I comfortable with that happening in this, you know, area that's technically held sovereign by the people? or at least should be. I think that's a, a really impactful way to get involved and to ensure that the things that are happening in, in your country's waters are, are things that you want there, frankly, as a citizen. Yeah, definitely. I think it's so important to consider that political power that we have, because I think sometimes it's so easy to forget that and just think, well, the only influence I can have is as a consumer is by picking Right. you know what to buy but if your options if none of them are sustainable then you know what are you going to do right I just want to take a quick step back and look at the oceans broader at the moment because this is the first and only discussion about oceans that we actually have this week in the summit and that it's quite crazy in a way because I, I think that's quite reflective of overall the attitude that people have an awareness that people have of oceans which is maddening because they cover 70 percent of the surface and this conversation has and will obviously focus on fishing but i'm just wondering if you think that fishing is the biggest threat to our oceans or if there is actually you know something bigger happening as well um you know it's like choosing between like the worst <laughs> things Yes, I, I, you know, I study fishing because I think it's the most, I think it's the primary, I think it's the most immediate threat to our oceans. That being said, it's like, you know, what an elephant in the room to ignore if we're not going to talk about climate change and its impact on the oceans. It's a huge problem, not only for fisheries, but for the human communities who rely on fisheries who you know, we're looking at the down the barrel of them losing their their land that they live on. So it's it's like, sure, we can protect, we can stop overfishing, but like, what if you just wipe out the fishery because of climate change? So I think you know, it's it's almost like I do think that fishing is the most primary threat, which is why I work on it. But I I don't think it's 
I don't think we can ignore these other these other problems whatsoever. And it's you know hand in hand, of course. Um, there are certainly other threats to the ocean. You know, pollution is a huge one, of course. Pollution, including plastic pollution, but also including lots of other lots of other pollutants. Um, I think that you know there are certainly particular areas that have really, really important threats like harmful algal blooms, like invasive species in some places, you know, lionfish are a great example in the Caribbean. But I think that in many places, overfishing or unsustainable fishing is, is the biggest threat, um, at least to ecological communities and to the people who rely on them. But, you know, of course, that's just going to get exacerbated with climate change. So it's like, you can't necessarily disentangle them. Is what I'm trying to say. <laughs> yeah, thank you. There's so many interconnections, as you say, especially as climate change is the one that people go to when you probably ask most of the general population what the pressure is on the oceans at the moment. Mm -hmm. So when it now we've like kind of paid attention to what the issues are, marine protected areas are often a favored conservation method for protecting marine ecosystems. Would you be able to explain exactly what they are and what role they play when it comes to sustainable fishing and whether you think they do a good job? Yeah, great. Good question. Um, so marine protected area is essentially just an area, a region of the ocean that people have decided to set aside for some level of protection. Um, there is a whole spectrum of marine protected areas. There are some that are you know, fully no take. By no take, it means no fishing. There are some that are fully, you know, no activity at all, no mining, no, no fishing, no um, extraction of any kind. Some even that are, you know, barring, you know, human touching, human tourism, all that stuff. I would say, and I, I know there's research about this, but I don't know the number off the top of my head, but the majority of marine protected areas are not no take. They allow some level of human activity, whether that be um, mining, uh, oil extraction, fishing. A lot of marine protected areas actually allow fishing at some level or another. But the point is that there are a designated area where you have said, you know, we don't want this type of activity, whatever that might be. So I think, you know, one danger in thinking about marine protected areas as, as you learn about them is thinking, oh, these are, you know, national parks where nothing, nothing occurs. Um, I don't think that's true in many, many cases. However, uh, marine protected areas have had amazing benefits for, for many different systems, not only for biodiversity, so species you know, recovering after they've been protected spatially, um, but also there's this concept called the spillover effect where outside at the very edges of a marine protected area, there often are species, you know, animals don't know where the edge, the boundary of the marine protected area is. They might just leave the protected area. And this has sort of indirect benefits often for fishers. So, you know, maybe they, they see an increase in their catch outside of the marine protected area simply because these animals have a place to sort of recover. And that's why a lot of marine protected areas are, well, intended to be sited in places that are really important for reproduction. Many are. So it's, again, like the fishing context is so diverse. They're used for a lot of different needs, a lot of different interests. Some sort of emerging um, issues in marine protected areas are a couple. Well, 
One thing that is obviously going to be a problem with climate change is that species, especially marine species, are predicted to shift their distribution. So if you're a, you know, cod, for instance, and you like the water temperature at exactly 60 degrees, um, what are you going to do if your water temperature changes with climate change? Of course, you're going to follow that temperature. So there's a lot of species that are expected to shift poleward towards the poles as climate change comes. And that's really important because if we designate these marine protected areas in a certain place, you know, the species might just move. And so there's some really interesting research now going towards understanding where species might shift, where mismatches are happening in the protected areas that are currently set and where we might need to move those. So that's one area of like new sort of interesting research. Another area is in these protected areas that are essentially shifting in time and space. They're called dynamic protected areas or dynamic management. And this is the idea that, you know, because species, especially highly migratory species, like the ones that I work on, like sharks and rays and sea turtles and tuna, you know, they're just not stationary enough for us to necessarily rely only on a stable marine protected area. So there's a, some cool work trying to look at how we can predict species movement based on um, temperature, based on environmental conditions in the water, and try to put up uh, protected areas that are essentially temporary. I think that's a really, really cool, really potentially interesting area. And, and just to the question of like, do they work? I think there's no doubt that, you know, in many cases, in many contexts, protected areas have worked, whether that be, you know, depends on what, what do you mean by work? You know, do you want more sea turtle? Do you want more fish? I think that they've worked in many contexts. One issue that they've had in, in many other contexts is that they haven't always involved the input and the participation of local communities, human communities. And that's really, really important because we know that human communities are sort of a determining factor in what happens in a coastal setting. You know, conservation, I, my, my advisor always says like, conservation is a human endeavor because people are the ones that we need to change behavior for in order to do any sort of conservation action. So there's a movement now towards these LMMAs, locally managed marine areas, where the community is much more involved um, than at least is tradition in, uh, in creating and implementing and monitoring and enforcing rules in a uh, marine area. And I think that's really promising. That's really exciting work because it's potentially more effective. You know, having local people involved in enforcing rules can be, you know, what makes it work or not, but also potentially more beneficial for ecosystems and for people. So that's like a lot of, you know, what's going on in marine protected areas. I'm certainly not an expert on that in particular. But I see a lot of promise in locally managed marine areas. And of course, now we have this whole 30 by 30 uh, goal. So it's, it's really important to understand what type of marine protected, protected area works because you know the 30 by 30 goal is, is happening no matter what. So I, I, I'm really interested in you know, what makes a marine protected area effective. And I think that one of those things is participatory design and implementation of them. Yeah, definitely. And just like add on to you mentioning the 30 by 30 goal for those who don't know, that's basically a promise that has been made to conserve 30% of land and ocean by 2030. 
but there's still so many unanswered questions like what does it mean by conserve like is just you know saying it's an MPA in this context enough or does it actually you know need to be that certain type of effective MPA involving communities so yeah that should be super exciting and it's always so interesting to me when uh, we make these comparisons like when we compare marine protected areas to national parks and it seems so natural to make that comparison but when you actually dive into it there's just so many differences between land and ocean it almost feels silly that we go to making that comparison because you can't just you know put a fence around and stop fish from leaving so yeah right. Totally. Yeah. And just, you know, to add on to your point, one thing that people have called some ineffective marine protected areas is paper parks, where they just exist on paper and they're not actually enforced or, you know, regulated or effective. And I, I really like that phrase, but I'll just say one um, similarity potentially between many national parks, at least in the U.S., um, but in many other countries as well, and many marine protected areas is that they have not involved the participation of local people, particularly of indigenous people. So in the US, like that is a, you know, enormous black spot in our history. Um, and in many marine protected areas, I think that some of the failures have been attributed to lack of participation, participation by indigenous groups, by local stakeholders. And it's like, you know, when are we going to get this message that we have to involve these groups in any of these protected area efforts it's just it's about time yeah definitely indigenous involvement is something that is key and lacking definitely so just staying with this potential solutions kind of theme that we've got going this one's a bit a bit more controversial than an MPA I think but what we've not addressed yet is aquaculture mm -hmm. so just to briefly explain what that is that's essentially fish farming and by some people it's kind of described as this amazing silver bullet solution because it means that we don't have to go out into the wild so I just wanted to get your thoughts on aquaculture and whether you do think that it's this Hail Mary solution yeah, that's a great question. I'll preface this by saying that I don't study aquaculture. I, I don't consider myself any type of expert on it. I mean, I'll share my thoughts, but, you know, take it all with a grain of salt. I think that it's, it's in our nature as people who are interested in solutions to look for something technological to grab onto. You know, we want something like that to work, right? And, and it would be great if it did. I think that there's a lot of ways to do aquaculture that can be very destructive to ecosystems, um, to animals certainly, but but also to ecological function. You know, there's a lot of pollution often. There's a lot of problems with the actual product with the fish that's produced. Um, you know, you can take like a salmon farm for example. Sea lice is a huge issue. Tons of runoff, tons of pollution, and even more so if you've sort of read anything about aquaculture, you know that many of the high value species, so salmon, um, sometimes tuna ranching is a thing, but, but, but really salmon and other carnivorous species, so anything that eats another fish or another animal to survive, they need something to eat. You know, you can't just throw grass pellets in there into their aquaculture pen. 
So often, unfortunately, and ironically, the production of fish in aquaculture farms requires the input of wild fish or of factory farmed meat. Obviously, not, neither of those things are things that we necessarily want to increase <laughs> in terms of the negative impacts associated with production on land and of, as we talked about, of wild fishing. So I don't think that that type of aquaculture is a solution. Um, putting in more wild uh, fish or factory farmed meat into feeding these carnivorous animals. So I, I would very much push back against that. The things that I think are really interesting and potentially have, you know, can benefit food security and sort of sustainability are things like kelp farming aquaculture. In Maine, where I'm from, there is a really interesting movement towards kelp aquaculture. Um, things like bivalve, so bivalve, like a clam or a mussel, these are species that actually filter water and can, you know, clean um, local water. So I think that those are potentially, you know, lower impact and potentially beneficial solutions. But, but I think it's also, you know, again, it, it's not a silver bullet, as you say, it just, we have these foundational structural problems that are associated with our economic system, with our political system. And it's like, we can't just like say, oh, here's the tech solution that'll fix it all. I think it's really compelling for folks, but, um, and, and I think that it deserves certainly further research and an investigation where are these technological aquaculture solutions going to be impactful? How can we use them as part of this like menu of solutions? But, but I guess I'd say I wouldn't put all of our eggs in that basket for sure. Adding on to what you say there about a menu of solutions, if we go more into the consumer kind of role now, because we've spoken a lot about the governance perspectives and how critical we are of their success. As someone that has never eaten fish, it's really interesting to see on the kind of UK market in particular, the presence of vegan seafood substitutes. And I know it's quite new here, and I'm not sure about the rest of the world, but I'm quite critical of it and can't actually bring and try it. So what do you think about this sustainable alternative and would you recommend trying it or can you not say? I, oh my gosh. Well, I have not actually like had the opportunity to try one yet. I just haven't come across them. However, I'll say that I, I think these are wonderful and amazing. You know, I mean, we, need people do want to eat seafood right like there is just not getting over that fact that there are some people that you're just not going to convince to not eat bluefin tuna i think that having a product that closely mimics seafood is a fantastic substitution obviously you know we have to be concerned with the way that product is manufactured as well what are the sort of things that go into it? what are the indirect impacts of that type of production I think if it were to be well done, particularly some of this lab-grown seafood, I mean, I'm near Palo Alto, there's a lot of cool, interesting tech going on there. I think that if we can market something like an impossible burger that is for seafood, I, I see that as a huge, huge benefit and, and perhaps one of the only really viable solutions for some of these species where people just really want to have that farmed salmon. And, and if we can have something that replaces a carnivorous fish like that, I see that as hugely a huge solution. So, you know, interestingly enough, I, I do see a lot of promise in that. Obviously, we have to make it palatable. And that's not something I 
you know, can do. But if I know there's a lot of brains that have made these like really amazing meat substitutes, and I totally see that that's possible for the seafood sector. I'll say that if there are any folks that are interested in, in sort of bioengineering or any of that sort of like nitty gritty stuff, there is cool stuff going on. There is frankly a lot of investor interest in those seafood replacements and a lot of, you know, money being funneled into that type of work. So it's, <laughs> I don't want to say it's a cash cow, but it's an area of interest for a lot of people. Um, and I, I see a lot of promise in that. I don't know a lot about it because I don't think there's a whole lot out there, but maybe we can all try some soon. <laughs> Definitely. And I think it's really interesting that you mentioned like the Impossible Burger, because the amount of branding that those sort of vegan products receive is insane. And if I hadn't like walked by wasabi a name drop if any of you want to try the new vegan zaman um it's all over their windows but on instagram i've not seen it anywhere and i do follow a lot of accounts that try and push people to be more vegan mm. so it's really interesting to see how again the ocean has kind of been overlooked um, in this new movement so if any of you have tried vegan seafood please like feel free to reach out to the boys account or the animal rights account and let us know what it's like and whether we should kind of venture that way. Um, but a quick, quick reminder now is that we, this is the last question before the audience Q and A. So please do continue to put your questions in the Q and A chat box and we will come to them next. In a short, brief sentence how do you think we can help the seafood industry become more sustainable do you think it comes from us on the consumption side and i know we've already partially addressed the policy side but what would the one policy push that you would recommend us do hmm that's a great question i think that i'm going to give the one policy push but i'll also you know as an aside say people often ask or like one of the biggest questions i get is like what seafood should I eat or should I eat seafood? I don't think it's actually that relevant of a question, frankly. It's like, if if eating seafood doesn't align with your morals, don't do it. And, and I think if you really look at the way a lot of seafood is produced, you might find that it, it may not align with your morals, frankly, because of sustainability concerns, because of labor concerns, perhaps because of animal welfare concerns. You know, I think if you really take a hard look at it, it might not. That being said, I don't, think that it's worth a lot of time to focus on exactly what every person eats. You know, it's the same thing, like, should we focus on whether every single person is driving a car? I think there's just a lot of different ways to be sustainable. And um, it's great to, you know, reduce your fish intake or, or not eat fish. But I think more impactful potentially is, again, going back to this policy, as, as you mentioned, you know, going back to what can we do politically? I would say that if you could, you know, have one policy push, it's to look up the, the bills that are going through your Congress or through your, you know, regional or national, um, you know, governance bodies. What are the fishery management bills and who can I write a letter to? Who can I get involved with to say, you know, I, either I support this strict fishery management bill or I don't support it. You know, we are the constituents of many of these politicians. And frankly, I'll say that there's not always a lot of people weighing in on fishery management matters in parliament or Congress, but they're really, really important. And, and if you care about marine species, 
I'd say, in, you know, in my opinion, these are the ways to protect them. They might not be as, you know, flashy as some, <laughs> as for instance, you know, plastic cleanup or something, but I, I really see that um, the, the potential for regula regulatory, um, regulatory moves is, is the way to go. The one thing I'll add too is that there is a, co a consumer role to play in, in many cases. And in the tuna fishery, there is a, a real history of this. I'm sure none of you know this, but, or, or maybe you know it, but you probably weren't around for it. In the 80s and 90s, there was a, a real outcry about bycatch actually in tuna fisheries, actually in the fishery that I work in. And it was because it was found that they were um, bycatching dolphins and a lot of dolphins, thousands of dolphins were dying every year because of tuna fishing. And as a result of this and some amazing work done by Greenpeace and other folks, there was a boycott of tuna products, which is really powerful. I mean, boycotts, that's like a political move to me. That's like beyond just like, do I eat or not eat seafood? That's a collective action sort of movement and a campaign, a really thoughtful campaign too. So that's like an example of like how consumers can actually band together and have a voice. I'll say that there's a lot of orchestration that's done for those type of things in nonprofit organizations and getting involved in a nonprofit organization as a volunteer, as an intern, as anything, any way you can get involved. That's a great way to get your finger on the pulse of things that are going on in your region um, and to help hopefully help join some of those efforts. You know, usually they, they know that what bills are coming out, what you know, consumer issues there are. So getting involved in a local nonprofit organization or a national nonprofit organization is a great way to start. Sorry, the last thing I'll say is like, if you really care about these things, consider doing it for a career. I mean, you guys are all in like the perfect spot for this. Um, there are so many ways to do marine conservation as a career, whether as an economist, an ecologist, a social scientist, an activist, you know, any of these types of jobs, grad school, get a master's, get a job working in the marine sector. There's tons of ways to, you know, devote your life to this. And I'll say that it can become very rewarding and, and feel like, you know, there's some hope in doing something that, that makes you feel like you're contributing to, to hopefully helping address the problem. <laughs> I Thank think. you so both so much it's great to have some like practical things to do and you know to actually feel that you can make a difference so thank you sure. so yeah I think it's time to move on to our audience questions so we have quite a few submitted so we will try and get through them all well we will get through them all <laughs> and so the first one is why are fish with such low population levels still being sold to the public for example, cod is classified as vulnerable, but it's still sold in the UK, a country which seems to be aware of the importance of biodiversity. Right. That's a great question. Um, another great example, cod is a great example. Another great example is bluefin tuna, which is considered endangered on the IUCN red list. And, you know, it's still eaten all around the world. I'll say that, you know, one of the foundational reasons for this in particular is that it's a commodity, it's a global commodity and no longer, you know, considered only a, an animal. You know, we have now commodified these animals that are, that were once, you know, locally fished and locally consumed, but now there's a market, there's a seafood supply chain that usually that cod or that bluefin tuna is 
uh, captured in one place and eaten 3,000 miles away, if not more. Um, if not flown 3,000 miles, packaged, and then flown back for consumption. So, so I, I'd say that the disconnect between or the mismatch between the animal as an animal and the uh, animal as a commodity and a global, you know, globally traded item is one of the reasons for this. In terms of, you know, a lot of times, especially for fish, sort of more practically, a lot of conservation designations don't always align with fishery management designations. So for instance, you know, cod or bluefin tuna that's considered vulnerable or critically endangered, often the fishery might categorize it as either overfished or not overfished. And those don't always align. Um, I would say that, you know, the, the final reason is that uh, there's a market for it. And if there's a market for something, people are going to figure out how to sell it. There's a really interesting concept in conservation biology called the anthropogenic allay effect. And it's essentially like in very short, this idea that something that is more rare is more valuable. So for instance, like rhino horn is a great example of this. The rarity of rhino horn makes it super valuable. And now it's going for billions of dollars, you know, for just a little bit. And in some cases with some fish, bluefin tuna is a good example, you know, the fact that it's rare means people will pay even more for it. So now you see these markets like Japan, for example, where there's million dollar tunas. Um, so I think that these economic factors are really important in thinking about why do we overfish? Why is this driver to overfish still there, even though we know there's a problem? Which is why, sorry to keep pushing my agenda on you all, but which is why we really need great economists for this type of work. Some of the coolest stuff going on in fisheries research is from economists who are doing critical work on um, the drivers of overfishing from an economics lens. So it's a lot of a lot of reasons, but you know what I posit as some of the reasons for this. Okay, thank you very much for pushing your agenda on us. <laughs> it's really necessary, so thank you. Um, another question we have is, what is the approach for incorporating more indigenous involvement and knowledge into your work in particular or your field of study overall? Yeah, that's such a great question. I love that interest. For me personally, you know, I'm not working with indigenous groups right now. I would love to in the future, but currently my work doesn't involve indigenous fisheries, um, really because it's with tuna fishers that are generally in like massive vessels. So uh, it's just not the same type of fishery. However, I'll say there's really amazing, amazing work going on looking at indigenous fisheries, their interactions with other fisheries, with commercial small scale fisheries and with large scale fisheries. That is super, super cool. One way that I'm interested or that I'm doing sort of participatory work with fishers in my sort of setting is to involve them in the production of this bycatch mitigation technology. So essentially what I do is I have these big workshops with fishers, mostly in Ecuador, where the tuna fishery that I work with is based. And it, uh, the first thing I did was I just asked them what they know about manta and devil ray capture in their fisheries. And that was really important because, you know, we get this data back from them that they collect, we get genetic data, we get catch data, but we don't know what is the experience of the capture. And so we don't really know how to intervene. And that's why I said at the beginning, you know, I think it's really important to harness the knowledge of fishers, um, if for nothing else that it's practical, but also because it helps them feel like they're part of the conservation effort. 
And then, you know, again, practically, they're more likely to adopt the recommendations and the regulations that we give them. So that's one way that I've been trying to involve people. We also, in the production of these grids that we're doing, we actually are having the fishermen fabricate them using materials that are already on the vessel. So ropes and beams that are already, you know, freely available to them. And again, that's like for a practical reason. It's just because we know that they're more likely to use them if they made them themselves, if they specify them so that they actually fit within the vessel. You know, there's a lot of historical examples of fishermen devised by catch mitigation tools that work a lot better because they're, you know, they, they make sense to fishermen. So that's just some ways, but I'd say like in thinking about other research, the first way is to just start to ask communities that are stakeholders or that you wanna work with, you know, what matters to you? How can I make my research or my conservation work um, answer questions that you want to know about your ecosystem or solve problems that you see in your ecosystem? And a lot of communities are really, you know, generally uh, uh, maybe after a little um, introduction period are, are really welcoming to that type of participatory research. Thank you. Yeah, it's so important. It seems like we keep stumbling upon it, the importance of, you know, including these local communities. Mm -hmm. So with four questions left, they keep coming in and six minutes, we're going to have to speed through. And this is a a big one as well. So this is almost like a two-parter. So to what extent are sharks and rays being affected by pollutants such as microplastics, heavy metals and metalloids and pharmaceuticals? And then the second um, add-on from the same person is also in terms of migration in response to climate change, are there any plans in place in terms of understanding new areas that may need to be protected in the future? Yeah, great question. I'll just talk in the context of mantas, manta and devil rays, which is what I study. Um, yeah, they're filter feeders like a baleen whale. So they're taking in water, filtering it for krill. And obviously, you know, krill are not the only thing in the water. So there is recent research showing that they, their tissues have microplastics in them, like many other marine species which is really unfortunate. Um, you know, it's obviously a health issue for them. It's not clear yet exactly what type of toll that is taking on their survival probability, but obviously, you know, microplastics in your tissue, like all of us, is not a good thing. Um, just this, actually just yesterday, a really interesting study came out from um, uh, researchers in Mexico who looked at a manta ray or devil ray species and they found arsenic in the tissue, which is likely from a mine that's, you know, giving runoff into the uh, Gulf of California. So it's like, yeah, you know, filter feeders, they are bound to take on contaminants and, and these are obviously a huge problem. And in fact, that study found that they were being transferred from the mother to the offspring. So it's like, it's not even just one generation, it's multi-generational. And these things really build up I'd say that that's not a, a real place where there's a ton of research yet, so we need a lot more, but we can tell that there are problems, obviously, like any other any other species. And I think, again, that's an issue that is a, certainly a consumer problem. We need to get away from using plastics, but we also need to address these regulatory and policy um, reasons, drivers, why we have all of this crap going into our oceans. 
And then the question about climate change. Yeah, there's super cool work going on. If you're a quantitative person, there's super cool modeling work to try to understand, you know, where are animals likely to move for mantis, especially where are they likely to move? And a lot of them will follow that krill. So they're following oceanographic areas of upwelling, lots of nutrients where krill are likely to be found. And we can tell that they are moving in some cases, actually interesting. They might be um, gaining habitat in some areas and losing habitat in others, but there are areas where there's, there's potentially real big problems where maybe they're gaining areas, but they're more likely to overlap with fishing activity. So sort of a complicated scene, but there's some really cool work on that. My colleague actually, Nerea Lasama Ochoa, which I can share her name, is doing a lot of really cool work on um, mantas and climate change response. Great, so thank you. Please do share her name so we can check. And so this goes straight on to the next question where policy-based solutions are only as effective as monitoring and enforcement efforts. So what approaches have been taken by regulatory agencies to monitor compliance within policies and how do they fall short in supporting the protection of vulnerable species? Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, yeah, I think the, the good point at the beginning is like, yeah, we have these policies. As I said, we already know the policies are insufficient. And on top of that, we have low monitoring enforcement. I'll say that like in the tuna fishery, for example, um, you're supposed to have an observer on board your vessel who takes data. In many tuna fisheries, especially long line fisheries, which are different than the nets I was talking about, but essentially a long line of hooks, Observer coverage is like 20% at the highest, meaning that, you know, most vessels don't have anyone even taking data or ensuring that regulations are adhered to. So sort of baseline is to get more observers on vessels. If you're looking for a fun job after graduation or, you know, in some time period, being a fishery observer is a super, super cool way to get like hands-on experience sometimes, you know, for better or worse. Um, but there are generally seasonal jobs where you go on a fishing vessel and take data. Super, super fascinating if you're interested in fisheries, biology, fishery management, all that stuff. So anyway, back to your question is, you know, the first thing is to get better data, especially in these large scale fisheries, which are generally, you know, high income, high value fisheries. So we need observers. It's not that there is, you know, underfunding in some of these, in many of these fisheries. In terms of compliance, often these are national um, issues where countries need to require better compliance, better data collection, better data submission, and have more strict policies. It gets a little wonky, but generally those are sort of national issues where we're trying to you know, encourage countries to have better enforcement by some of the ways they um, sanction and incentivize fishers. So, fishing companies that don't obey the rules. How can you sanction them, whether removing subsidies, whether, you know, other sort of limits. Um, it's a little wonky, but it's a huge problem. So it's a good thing to bring up, you know, it has to go hand in hand. I totally agree with policy. Yeah, thank you. Um, we There's still two questions left, but unfortunately I think that's all we have time for. So maybe we can get in touch and answer those and then we can post the responses because they were to do with, you know, global laws and also how we can tell. So I think that would be really interesting as well. But yeah, but thank you everyone for all of your questions. There's been so many. So thank you for being so engaged. 
And obviously, thank you, Melissa. It's been so fascinating hearing about everything that you've done. And it's been great that we've managed to bring the ocean to the forefront of this discussion. So hopefully this conversation can carry on as we all go away with friends and colleagues and family. So also I'd like to thank Save Our Seas Foundation, not only for putting us in touch and for supporting your research, but for the amazing work that they do outside of that as well. So before we log off, I'd just like to remind everybody that this is not the end of the Voice Sustainable Food Summit. Uh, we have another panel discussion actually tomorrow with Summer and I, and we will be discussing chocolate and coffee. So two very luxurious goods that I'm sure we all love. And we've got Ryan Zinn from Dr. Bronner's and Monica Fell from Cooperative Coffee. So hopefully we'll see lots of you there tomorrow. So thank you again, everyone for joining us. And thank you, Melissa, so much for sharing your expertise with us. Thanks. So I, I hope everyone enjoys the rest of their day. So goodbye. I think everyone's slowly leaving. So yes, thank you so much, Melissa, for your time. This has been lovely. Of course. No, thank you so much. Those were really great questions. Sir made me made me think a lot. <laughs> it was really cool. Thanks so much for making it happen.